Hey everyone, I'm Jonathan Williams. I am the sometimes host of our Midrash NYC podcast. I'm also the pastor at Forefront Church in New York City. This conversation that we're about to share with you today is an important one. It's a conversation that we had with my dear friend, Linda K. Klein. She wrote a book called Pure, Inside the Evangelical Movement That Shamed a Generation of Young Women and How I Broke Free. It's an important book because, let's be honest, the evangelical purity culture has had a devastating effect on a generation of Christians. It's, it's something that has produced a ton of shame and a ton of guilt. And so what I love that Linda is doing is she's tackling this subject. She's confronting it head on. She's holding the church accountable and she's giving us a new sexual ethic and a new way to think about sex in the midst of a new kind of spirituality that we're forever cultivating here at Forefront and here at the Midrash NYC podcast. So take a listen to this. We had a great conversation. And after this conversation is over, stay tuned because we have another way that you can connect to Linda K. Klein and her work uh, coming up through the pipeline. And you don't want to miss that either. The first thing I wanted to start out was a comment that will lead into a question, but just the the first comment of just how I did love the writing style that you used uh, approaching this book, because by by grounding the book in, in anecdotes and kind of weaving your observations around like your arc and development, the story you're telling is it's really a lot more engaging. And it also lends itself to these parallels, like when you're describing Crohn's disease, I'm going to quote you, uh, the disease tricks the immune system into thinking the essential entities are bad. And I thought, uh, well, those physical symptoms actually just sound a lot like the spiritual symptoms of purity culture. Um, so it added an, an element to that. I'm just kind of wondering if you could talk about how you eventually settled on this approach and, and that this was the way you were going to write and tell this story. Yeah. Well, so first of all, I just want to say thank you for <laughs> picking up because I was, in fact, in sharing that metaphor, really, really trying to be making two statements at once. You know, um, at the same time as I was talking about my own personal experience and specifically my personal experience with Crohn's disease, um, I was also making a cultural commentary on purity culture, which um, uh, through so that metaphor that you're sharing, I was trying to to do the power of both talking about purity culture and talking about my personal experience with the same metaphor. And I like, I like how you, I like how you talked about, you know, the fact that I was, um, talking about the personal in order, you know, as Gloria Steinem says, says the personal is political, right? And of course the political is personal. So I think as much as we can remind ourselves of that, um, you know, when as artists, I think the better, you know, we are at being able to communicate. So just to, just to kind of give lis listeners a little bit of a context on what you mean. So the book, you know, certainly tells my own story of growing up in the evangelical Christian church and of the way in which purity culture results in my own shame and fear and anxiety and PTSD-like experiences. Um, it also talks about the 12 years of interviews that I did with other people who were raised in the movement and the sort of slow unraveling of what the movement is. You know, when I first started doing this research, I had I had no idea, we had no idea as a culture that there had been this thing called the, that we now call the purity movement, right? Um, and so anyway, so the, so the book kind of marries my own story and the stories of all of these other women from around the country who have had similar experiences to my own with this, um, revealing of culture. So one of the things that happened to me 
that really was important for me on a personal level is that I ended up getting really, really sick. And I was in uh, college and I was losing a lot of blood. In fact, it actually started in high school and I was losing a lot of blood and I was really just not being taken seriously by doctors. And they uh, even, I even had some doctors and other people in my life accuse me of kind of overstating my symptoms and maybe exaggerating and, you know, making too big of a deal out of, out of what was clearly not as big as I was telling them it was. So I ended up doing self-silencing and saying, okay, well, I guess you're supposed to lose a cup of blood at a time. You know, I guess you're supposed to be in horrific pain and have to take five ibuprofens in order to go to class. And, and that self, that self silencing, you know, in order to be pleasing to others, you know, they say that this is that I'm being ridiculous and therefore I should, I should, I should ignore that and just, um, you know, suffer better instead of focusing on getting better, focus on suffering better, you know, which was very much part of uh, this larger culture that I grew up in, this evangelical culture, which included purity culture, but was really a culture of um, uh, for anybody, but particularly, I think, for women and girls, don't complain, don't rock the boat. This is the way things are. Um, you know, that all of those things were connected, right? So my own health and my experience within the community, um, you know, were sort of inextricably connected. And ultimately, I ended up almost dying because the disease got so out of control that I had to ultimately be rushed into surgery. I lost my entire large intestines. Uh, I lost much of my small intestines. I had an ileostomy bag for a year. Um, I had four major surgeries and had to drop out of college. All, you know, it was just incredible how bad it had gotten. And when in that year, I started to really look at what had allowed that to happen and look at my self-silencing and the silencing that others did, um, you know, I, I really started to analyze, gosh, what is going on with me that I'm trying to be acceptable to the extent that I am willing to um, be in such a dangerous position that I almost die? Like, I might have died. When they did the first surgery, the surgeon was like, we can wait until Monday. This was on a Friday. We can wait until Monday to do your surgery, but we are not convinced you will make it until Monday. So we want to do this surgery tomorrow morning. Would you be amenable to that? So the metaphor, when they, when I really was diagnosed finally with Crohn's after that first surgery, and I started to understand what Crohn's was, you know, Crohn's is kind of an interesting disease. It's an autoimmune disease. So autoimmune diseases are where your immune system essentially tricks your body um, or the disease tricks your immune system is a better way to put it um, into thinking some part of the body or some part of something in the body is outrageous and shouldn't be there when actually it's really normal. So in the case of Crohn's disease, your, um, the, the, the disease tricks the immune system into thinking that stool um, and, you know, these very normal things to be in the body, food and stool going through your intestines are terrible and shouldn't be there. And so the immune system attacks the food and the stool in your body. But what's holding the food and the stool? Well, the intestines. 
So what ends up happening is the immune system actually inadvertently attacks the body itself, right? The immune system, the thing that's supposed to be there protecting the body is actually attacking the body, destroying the intestines by trying to destroy the food and the waste, thinking they're not supposed to be there when they're actually you know, vital for one's survival. And in this way, the immune system becomes the thing that is the greatest threat to the body. And that metaphor is so important because it was so similar growing up in purity culture, where we had these things that were normal, you know, that were that were vital in parts of being human, right? These, for example, sexual feelings, you know, sexual thoughts, um, you know, just uh, having, being an embodied person with, you know, with curves in my case or whatever it was, these normal, healthy human parts of us that the protectors of the body of Christ, if you will, mm. said, no, those are foreign entities. They shouldn't be there, right? Much like much like we said, the waste in the stool shouldn't be in the body. No, these, these sexual feelings, these sexual thoughts, these, you know, women with their hips, these, you know, <laughs> um, you know, women who are talking, talk, having the audacity to talk, to talk so confidently that they <laughs> must be flirting, right? Mm -hmm. Um, you know, are are bad and therefore we should attack them right and and what i think ends up happening is is that is that in this way purity culture and the purveyors of purity culture become the very thing that the body actually needs protection from right like like my sexual self as a 13 year old girl was not going to destroy the body of Christ, but the judgmentalism and the shame and the ways in which we were taught to self silence and self hate that has a real good shot at destroying um, the community that has come together to be whole together, but that is fragmented by this kind of action and thinking. And I mean, your your answer and your comment just kind of brings my mind in so many different directions. But I guess the, the next question that I want to tie into is you mentioned being raised in the evangelical community. I, I All three of us here on this conversation, we're all raised in the evangelical community. And the way that evangelical women uh, are raised is, is sort of like a more intensive version of society as a whole, unfortunately, in the sense of how women's medical needs are often ignored uh, to the extent that um, their health is damaged. I mean, you just described that. And even in the book, there's people talking about PTSD symptoms are, are described by many of the interviewees, but they're disregarded by medical professionals as sort of not being overdramatic, but as being written off as attributed to something else. Um, and it's even uh, kind of upsetting that you were kind of considered acceptable after being sick. You know, there's this emphasis mm. on this pain and suffering and like, well, now that you've gone through that, you're, there's sort of a purity that comes out of that. Um, and the way that sexuality is equated with power or, you know, kind of the lack thereof with meekness and, and, and weakness, as you described, is uh, is fascinating and insightful. Um, can you describe how that realization kind of affected you at the time when you sort of realized like this dynamic was at play and how what just came about for you from that? Yeah, it's it's interesting. Um you know, your question makes me think about, I had a conversation with my mom the other day and for people who read my book, you know that my mom has really struggled with me thinking and talking about, talking publicly about these issues. It's been a really big 
challenge. Um, but you know, the incredible thing is that she has continued to wrestle with them. And especially since the book has come out, you know, she still wrestles with these things on a daily basis and tries to make sense of the fact that she put me into a community that she thought was going to be life giving and that, you know, I, I have dedicated so much of my life <laughs> to deconstructing the ways in which it harmed me. And she said to me the other day when we were talking on the phone, she said, I had this realization, I had this memory, and it's a memory that that I shared in the book that you're referencing um, in your question. She said, I had this memory of you in high school saying to me, why am I always cast in the church plays as a Jezebel? <laughs> <laughs> and she said, I remember you saying, well, I'm an, I want to be an actress. It's not, you know, I'm not complaining. I, I want, I like trying on, you know, um, you know, characters, right? But like, why am I always cast as the Jezebel? And it wasn't just, you know, in the church, I was actually cast as the Jezebel in school plays and in community plays. So clearly, you know, there was something, something that people were picking up that I think had to do with my confidence and my charisma and the fact that I was um, not quiet. And it's funny, we started to talk about it. And, and she said, in retrospect, I think to myself, why didn't I notice what they were doing to you? And I said, you know, the thing is, I think about why I was cast as the Jezebel so much, not just in church, but in 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 school and in the community plays, and and I and I don't think that it was that I had this like ineffable sexual energy or something like that, right? <laughs> like, I really do think it's that I was confident and that I made jokes and that I talked to everyone, and there was something about just standing out in general that was seen as threatening and that was sexualized. Um, so I think that is sexualized in society and that was specifically sexualized in the church. There's this kind of idea that if you are meek and quiet, that you are also somehow sexless and safe. And if you uh, stand out in any way, you know, there's there's something inherently sexual, um, you know, that you want to stand out for sexual reasons. Right. And and so so what ended up happening when I got sick that you're referencing is, you know, here I am now, this generally speaking, strong, confident, you know, self self-hating but also confident you know <laughs> at the same time um you know young woman and then i got really sick and i spent a year and a half you know in bed and deeply depressed and i lost 40 pounds and all those curves you know went went much smaller and i remember you know going to church on the days that I could go to church. And I just, it, it, you know, it was hard to walk even, right? So you would walk really slowly from the car to the pew and really slowly from the pew to the bathroom. And maybe I'd have to have my dad walk with me and hold my arm. And anyway, during that period, my mom pulled me aside and she said, Linda, you've been cast in the church Christmas uh, nativity scene. We had a live nativity scene. She said, you've been cast as Mary in the live nativity scene. And I remember being like, what? Like me of all people consistently, always the Jezebel. I'm Mary. 
and I had this realization, oh, it's because I'm finally what they want me to be, right? I'm finally meek. I'm finally, you know, not curvaceous. I'm finally not standing out. I'm finally not threatening. And in that moment, I remember being like, I've been trying so hard to fit into your idea of what I should be. I've been trying so hard to be pure. I've been trying so hard to be acceptable and I could never do anything right. And here I am, lo and behold, I finally did what you wanted me to do. And all it took was almost dying, right? And being so sick that I can't function in my life. And for me, that was that moment when I was like, never mind. Like, I'm not interested I'm not interested in accepted anymore, at least the moment in which that changed in my mind. Now, the moment in which that changed in my body and my spirit, you know, was many years later. But the first moment that I think I really was like, I'm done, you know, was that moment that I was, I had finally won, you know, I had finally been cast as Mary and I, I didn't, I didn't want to have to live, um, in a way in which I was almost dead in order to be acceptable. I mean, that's an incredibly powerful story. Wow. Thank you for sharing it. I mean, it sounds like that was a bit of the beginning of your journey. And on that journey, you talked about how um, you sort of kept that to sell to yourself. Was it a period where, where you were sort of working it through on your own by yourself? Were you able to talk to others? Did you confide in other people at that time? Um, were there other women that you were able to talk to about this? Or was it something that people didn't believe or didn't understand? I'm just curious how the beginning of that journey went for you. Yeah. Well, when I went back to college, uh, after being gone for a year and a half with my surgeries, I went back and I, uh, went back no longer as an evangelical and the language I would have used at the time was no longer as a Christian, right? Because I had learned that there was only one interpretation of what Christianity meant. Now, these days I consider myself a Christian, but it's a very different kind of Christianity than the one in which I was raised. But at the time I went back to college and I said, I'm not a Christian anymore. And I said to my long-term boyfriend, uh, guess that means we could, you know, have sex outside of marriage now. (laughs) (laughs) I remember him being like, fantastic. Right. (laughs) And, you know, so he and I, he and I, you know, were actually quite innocent, both of us. and, And we really took our time, um, in our relationship and we ended up dating for a very long time. We dated for, you know, five years or so. And over the course of those years, we would try to have sex um, and we would talk about trying to have sex and we would talk about other people having sex. And in every one of these instances, he and I never had sex, by the way, we never were able to actually do that because in every one of these instances, the shame that I had internalized about sexuality growing up, the fear and the anxiety would manifest in my body in these PTSD-like ways that were absolutely preventative from anything, you know, sexual happening. You know, I would be, you know, breaking out in tears and and sort of in a ball, holding myself, you know, into as closely as I could. I would be, um, my eczema would come out and I'd be scratching myself until I bled. You know, and even afterward, when we would not have sex yet again, I would still be taking pregnancy tests because I was afraid that um, that the impending doom that I had been promised would come if I were a sexual person would still come, mm-hmm. you know, even if I even if I didn't have sex. And it, it was incredibly isolating because now here I was, 
you know, in this secular world, because I um, had actually dropped out of Bible college and started attending a uh, a liberal, uh, liberal, liberal, liberal arts college. <laughs> and um, and I remember feeling incredibly isolated and and talking to some of my secular friends about it. And they were just like flabbergasted, like, what is going on with you? Why? Why would even having a conversation about your friends having sex with your boyfriend, right? You know, turn you into such a tailspin that you that you would almost have a panic attack, right? It just made no sense to them. So, so to kind of get around to your question, you know, the first moment in which I really felt heard, it wasn't the first moment in which I talked about it because I talked about it with my peers in in college, but the first moment in which I felt heard was when I started to call up my childhood girlfriends from my youth group uh, that I had grown up in and tell them what I was experiencing. And I felt heard because they um, were experiencing many of the same things. And my kind of whispered story of what was happening to me, you know, resulted in their whispering back very similar stories about their own lives, you know, though some of them had actually you know, remained evangelical, had never had a kiss until they got married, had done everything just the way that they were quote unquote supposed to, right? And here we both were, right? With this almost paranoid like fear, right? And this anxiety that was so great that it was disruptive to our own lives and certainly to our relationships. And that realization was really the beginning um, of my healing, which only happened by having conversations. So I ultimately, you know, a few years later, ended up at the age of 26, moving back to my hometown. I interviewed every girl who I could get a hold of, now an adult woman, uh, who had been raised in youth group with me over a 10-year span between the ages of 20 and 29, and interviewed them about their experiences as adults, you know, having been raised in what we now know as the purity movement. And this became the beginning for those 12 years of interviews that I did with people across the country, a variety of types of people, but particularly with uh, people who were raised as girls in white evangelical Christian churches, um, who was really the the core target audience of the purity movement, though, of course, the purity movement had um, many, many audiences and impact, impacted many, many, many more people. What you have just described there and what you describe in the book and that we've touched upon already is basically PTSD symptoms manifesting because of a, a, a psychologically and emotionally traumatic experience and relationship. And I know that particularly when it comes to the evangelical community, prayer is always a thing. Of course, if someone is sick, we will, you know, we'll pray for them, but we'll also recommend that they go to the doctor or they see someone. But when it comes to more the mental and emotional health side, there's prayer, but there's sort of a, a tendency to downplay it or not take it as seriously. And I'm wondering, as someone who has experienced that firsthand and who has interviewed all these um, all these women who have gone through these type of situations, were you able to kind of uh, explore or figure out just why there still seems to be, to this day, in the evangelical community, kind of a stigma around mental health or why it's just not being taken as seriously as physical ailments? Mm. Well, I would say even physical ailments are frankly um, uh, not always handled terribly well within the community. But, uh, you know, I think I think part of it is the fact that within 
these um, settings like evangelical Christianity where you have to be a particular thing in order to be considered good, right? Um, and in order to be considered Christian and in order to be considered saved, you know, there's a lot of uh, playing by the rules, right? So if you feel if you feel angry, you know, you as a, a woman, I can say, if you feel angry, you better be careful who you tell that you're feeling angry to, right? And and how you express the fact that you're feeling angry, right? Um, you know, so even even expressing anger, <laughs> you know, is controversial. You know, so then when you get into things like mental health, right? You know, these, you know, the the idea that you are going to be shamed by being told just accept God's grace or just, you know, just embrace that, um, that, you know, the Lord's healing or, you know, whatever it might be. And, and these very like shaming ways that you don't, you aren't, you aren't fitting into this rubric of acceptability. You aren't normal. Therefore you aren't good. Right. Is, is threatening. So I think there's a lot that goes under the surface. Um, I mean, even frankly, you know, the reason I said that about physical health is I think even physical health, you know, sometimes we have people who are told your physical challenge, you know, the fact that you haven't healed yet is, uh, indicative of you're not having embraced God's healing, right? You know, we, we have a lot of ideas about how we have to be this shiny, joyful, um, to the point of it not being, you know, uh, you know, authentic, <laughs> you know, picture of perfection with a perfect, a perfect, um, never sad, never angry, never troubled mind. Or if you are, you know, it's just for a minute before you remember God's love. And, you know, the, the story is wrapped up with a bow. Right. And I think the, you know, the thing that's so interesting to me about this is, as one of my interviewees actually put it so well, he said, um, yeah, gosh, I have to remember the exact phrasing it's in the book, but he said, you learn to live from the surface, you know? So whatever it is that is your deep challenge that you might be shamed for and silenced for and blamed for and told, told you're not holy for, um, you learn to keep it, uh, beneath, right beneath the areas that you're showing, which is one of the reasons that I think, you know, to go back to your question, Jonathan, about, you know, talking to other women about story and about their stories. You know, I mentioned that when I started talking to them, that's when the healing started. That's because as far as I'm concerned, you know, telling the truth about our lives, right, whether it's our sexual lives or whether it's our mental health or any number of things that we have learned to keep beneath the surface, when we tell the truth about our lives, it is a wildly radical transformative act Absolutely. because the truth... Yes. Yeah, because I mean, once you once you have a, a group of people who are telling the truth, you know, the the myth that we are taught that everyone is everyone has a great sex life with their partner, that everyone, you know, that no one struggles with debilitating de depression, that, you know, all of these myths that we are taught um, become very, very obviously exposed <laughs> the minute the minute that we actually normalize truth telling. If you actually tell your real story and and really listen to the story of someone else, you know everything changes. Absolutely, yeah. 
I know that at our church, we talked recently about the idea that um, being good is a myth. You know, being good is actually a, a lie that we tell ourselves. Thank so you. Today, yeah. <laughs> I just had a big discussion with someone about this the other day. Yes. Yeah, yes. Absolutely. No, so we've been saying, you know, in the church community uh, that if we're going to uh, live life fully, which is, you know, what you're talking about, then uh, then we need to stop pretending to be good. We need to stop trying to be good. Yeah. Um, A lot of us were raised thinking that we were bad, which is also very unhelpful, right? Both the notion that we are good and the notion that we are bad is equally, you know, mythic. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, absolutely. And and there's some beauty to um, to just d- d- you know disposing of both of those uh, I- ideas, and I-, I I'm curious when you were talking to some of the people you you got a chance to talk to, uh, in what ways did you see um, did you see healing come? I mean, you talk a bit about your own healing. Uh, were you seeing that in others just by their ability to be honest, by their ability to tell the truth, and and what did that look like? Yeah, it's great. I actually had a 10-year span between some of my first and second interviews with people because I did these interviews for so long. And a number of people who I did an interview for those 10 years, and then I came back to 10 years later and said, you know, here's what you said 10 years ago. What do you agree with? What do you disagree with? What has happened since then? Where are you at now? Um, you know, a lot of them said that that first interview actually had changed the course of those 10 years um, because, one, they had never been asked to share about their um, experience as an embodied person, to share their, you know, sexuality autobiography, to share their journey of wrestling with the way in which the church Uh, had impacted their gendered and sexual life, right? And so even the mere experience of being asked and then just being listened to, you know, was transformative because they surfaced things that they had never really surfaced before. And then the other thing that was transformative about it that some people expressed was, you know, one of the things that I do in interviews that makes me, you know, not a traditional academic interviewer, right? Um, But when somebody tells me a story and I've heard a story like theirs before, I will often say to them, you know, you're the second or the third person to tell me a story like this. Let me share a story that someone else shared with me. And and that experience was the other big thing that a lot of people talked about having having created a shift in their lives, knowing that they weren't alone, you know, because people often shared with me stories that they thought they were the only ones who had ever experienced it, you know, similar to, to how I had felt before I started doing interviews. And once we started to get into the story exchange and I was able to say, hey, I experienced that or, hey, let me tell you the story about someone else, you know, that realization I am not alone alone, you know, was uh, enough for them to say, okay, if I'm not alone, then I'm not the problem, right? Because, you know, it can't just be that all of these women, (laughs) you know, we all are the problem, right? There's got to be something else. There's got to be something outside of us. And if it's outside of me, then I can deal with that, Right. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. (laughs) If it's something I was taught, if it's something I believed, it was something I internalized, you know, if if it's a habit that I that I, you know, um, uh, learned and and a way in which my brainwaves were paved. Right. I can I can do something to begin to heal from that. 
Oh, I love that. I, I, just, I love it because, you know, first of all, it, it just lifts a giant weight. Um, and it's, that's, that's an incredible thing to, to give someone. It's, it's a gift to be able to lift that weight. And so when that weight is lifted and you start to realize it's not, it's not me, you know, and it's not us, uh, what, what actions do, uh, did you start taking? In what ways were you like, hey, we need to tell the truth to everybody? I mean, obviously you wrote the book, which is wonderful. Um, <laughs> but in terms of uh, pe- people going through this right now, you know, what are, the, what are the steps or what are the ways in which um, we get to reclaim the fullness of humanity? Yeah. Well, when I first started gathering interviews, I actually wasn't sure that it was going to turn into a book. I didn't I didn't know exactly what it was going to turn into. All I knew was that um, I needed to get people's stories out there because I needed people to feel the way that I felt to have that realization. I am not alone and and to hear the the truth. Um, from other people. So in the early days, I actually thought that I might not write a book, but that I might create an online platform. Um, you know, this was this was back in the Friendster days. <laughs> so that was that was the model that I was I was like, can there be a closed Friendster just for people who are raised in this, who can just talk to each other, right? Who can actually tell their stories in a closed space. So, so that was what I was originally envisioning. But when I went out there and tried to do it, you know, this was still too underground. You know, people weren't talking about this enough that, um, that I felt like I could build something like that. So I realized that the first step needed to be to write this book because I needed to have a place to document a lot of these stories and to disseminate them. But it was never intended to stop there. It was always intended, the book was always intended to be a platform in order to help people who were reading it and who were in the world to get into this space of story exchange with one another. So what I ultimately ended up doing before the book was published was I started an organization called Break Free Together. And the organization's name is actually a response to the title of the book in some ways. So the book title is Pure, Inside the Evangelical Movement that Shamed a Generation of Young Women and How I broke free, but the organization is break free together. And that's, that is important to me because, you know, I didn't break free from this alone. This really was a communal process that I could not have healed. I believe had I never found anyone else who had experienced or was experiencing what I was experiencing. So break free together is about how we really come together and, um, and come into this sacred, you know, yet secular space of story exchange, not just as white evangelical, you know, people were raised as girls in white evangelical evangelical communities, but, you know, of people of many genders and sexualities and ethnic backgrounds. And, um, you know, this, the reality is, is that we all need to be telling the truth about our lives, <laughs> Yes, yes. <laughs> but that there is something particularly distinct about people who were raised in purity culture. And I don't just mean evangelical purity culture, but I mean, cultures in which Uh, People have been sexually shamed and in which they have been sexually silenced, which certainly happens in a number of religious communities, including evangelicalism, but not exclusive to it, and in a number of cultural groups and so on and so forth. For For people who grew up in these kinds of purity cultures, there is a particularly deep need to be able to come together and share. And so that's our target population with Break Free Together. So we host a variety of different types of story exchanges from 
online story exchanges to a dinner experience. In fact, you know, we're going to be doing a dinner experience with you all at Forefront Church, Jonathan. I'm really excited about that coming up. Absolutely, um, we, me too. Yeah. Yeah, where we're going to be bringing people together and we'll have, you know, a number of different tables where people can have intimate conversations with somebody from the community who's trained to hold a, um, a story exchange uh, among five people at an individual table. I'll be there to hold the large space all collectively together. So that's another type of our story of, of story exchange that we've been working on. And another uh, third kind that I'll just mention is we're building now toward creating a DIY version where people can actually lead a dinner experience story exchange in their home, uh, which I think is going to be completely incredible this year, you know, to have people around the country who are leading these conversations. So I think if actually if folks are interested in hosting something in their own home, and if they're in the New York area, they should actually come to the forefront dinner and actually experience it firsthand. And and that would be a great way to kind of get a feel for what it would be like in a larger space with lots and lots of people and protections like a trained therapist in the room and me in the room and staff members in the room to really, you know, make it as protected as possible so people can really bring their full bravery. Um, and and then, you know, if, if it goes well, which I have a feeling it will, I think we're going to have a lot of people who want to be doing this in their homes when we do that pilot in the summer and into the fall. It's of the, I mean, it's of the utmost importance. I, I think once we're able to tell the truth and, and once uh, women, especially who have, have gone through the shame, are able to tell the truth, it's an absolutely liberating thing. I'm so glad that we're getting the opportunity to do it. And for those uh, listening, we will talk about that at the end of the podcast and we'll give you the information on how to be a part of that. So speaking of Forefront, this was obviously my first exposure to you and to your book was when you came to Forefront to speak on this topic. And uh, it was a quite a receptive audience, I must say. I mean, when you asked him how many people had heard of or been r- raised in purity culture, I can't count how many hands went up, but it was a number. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, and so it was an environment where it was there were hearts and minds open to hearing your story and, and, and what you were what you had gone through and what these interviewees had gone through. But there's a story in the book, uh, specifically in the stumbling through church section, where the interviewee Joe. Uh, brings up a story about Billy Graham's daughter, Anne Graham Lotz, giving a talk that men walked out on uh, because her tone was, quote, too authoritarian. This is not something, once again, which is specific to the evangelical community. Um, A lot of women who are in positions of authority or independence have to kind of sometimes use conversational softeners, vocal fry or question marks in the sentences uh, in order to get kind of people and men to kind of respect them so they're not seen as too direct or difficult. I'm curious about your mindset uh, or or your approach when it comes to putting yourself in a position where your message isn't likely to be received but is arguably badly needed, um, such as a a conservative college or situation like that, or or just where where your message kind of needs to be heard. Uh, But also at the Mm. same time, this is the audience that has been so damaging to you and to these people that you have talked to? It's a good question. So I will say, first of all, I I do believe in being in conversation with people and in honoring them and respecting them where they're at. And so I might 
I might be, if I'm in a conversation with somebody who's really wrestling with these things, I might bring my voice into a place that, that honors that wrestling and, and, and is softer with them or what have you. Right. So, I mean, I just want to, I just want to say, I'm going to be human with people Mm -hmm. that having been said, I am uh, done, (laughs) you know, bringing my half self, I am done bringing half truths. I am done. Uh, changing the way in which I speak in order to be acceptable. Um, you know, in fact, when I catch myself doing those things, it, you know, it, it's not because I feel, it's not because I've made an active choice to do it, right? It's because I have slipped into it and I hate it. I hate it because because I just, I'm just not there anymore. And and the truth is that it does upset people. You know, I, I had a conversation <laughs> I can tell you so many conversations I've had, right, (laughs) with people where I where I really just really just didn't didn't apologize and and just and just said what needed to be said. Right. Mm -hmm. And um, and and even when people are receptive, sometimes in the moment, you know, they might later completely lose it behind your back right because (laughs) because that's not how women are supposed to be. Right. (laughs) That's Mm -hmm. not. Why is she making me apologize for belittling her and telling and saying that, you know, these completely inappropriate things to her? <laughs> Who does she think she is? Right. So, you know, so I, I, I don't know. Listen, I, I want to be human with people, but I, but I also want to be human with people. Right. <laughs> like, like I, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna pretend. And I, and I, I know a lot of people who, because, you know, we're talking about progressive Christianity. I know a lot of people who temper their message in order to be able to speak at particular conferences, um, that are more conservative, um, you know, um, so that they can have an impact in those communities. And, and I don't mean to say that that is something that they should not do. It's not something that I can do. Mm -hmm. Right. Like I, I remember when I got into a progressive um, or sort of like a moderate Christian group once. I remember being very nervous. I was like, I'm surely going to be kicked out of this, right? Because I'm <laughs> surely too progressive and they're going to find out and I'm going, they're going to. So anyway, so my reaction was at the first networking event to just like completely tell my most revealing things that would get me kicked out. Right. Because <laughs> I was just like, I, if you're going to accept me, here it is. Right? Mm-hmm. You know, here's what I believe. Here's what I stand for. Um, here's what I won't stand for. And, and that's, and that's really how I want to live my life. But the, the, the book is not all stories of woe and it certainly doesn't end like that. There is, as with most great stories, this movement towards, hope and change and all that sort of stuff. And even in the in the progressive Christian community, there is this idea, we talked about this in Forefront, this idea of not necessarily reclaiming sexuality and sensuality, but changing our perspective on it and embracing it for kind of what it is. And I'm wondering if you can talk to that point and kind of what you've seen and what, you're, um, what you can talk to in, in regards to how attitudes towards sexuality and sensuality are changing in the progressive church setting. Well, I mean, progressive Christianity has had a, well, I mean, gosh, it's such a complex, even just using those words is so complex, right? But um, when I think about the healthiest 
sexuality discussions that I've seen happen in Christianity. I think about the uh, Our Whole Lives curriculum uh, developed, co-created by the United Church of Christ and the Unitarian Universalist Association, which is a really incredible curriculum that is values-based sexuality education. So I find that young people who have been through that education are having incredibly healthy conversations about sex and sexuality and the body and relationships and friendships. So, so I feel like that's really where I see the conversations being the most healthy because I think, I think the, the whole point is when you have something like OWL, uh, you know, you start with kids who are really, really, really young. You start with like preschoolers who aren't talking about sex and sexuality and you teach them these values. And then you say, how do you want to think about these values like justice and inclusivity as you consider your friendships? Right. And then as we get a little bit older, how do you want to think about these things as we consider our romantic relationships? And then as we get a little bit older, how do we want to think about these things as we consider our sexual relationships? And the point around starting young, and by the way, OWL has curricula that goes all the way through to they're currently developing something for um, people who are in what is traditionally called retirement age. Wow. You know, so it really is our whole lives. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, that, that really, that really, it really does have to be that expansive because what I find is happening in some progress, progressive communities where, um, the purity ethic has been the core ethic for many people. And now they're deconstructing as adults is that they, uh, unknowingly are still holding on to many of the assumptions of purity culture, even as they are rejecting others. And it's hard not to do that, right? Deconstruction takes time, you know, and oftentimes, oftentimes we're kind of stuck at various levels. So one of the levels that I've talked about, um, you know, uh, before is a very common one is that people, when they first you know, let go of something like purity culture, this idea that you are pure or you are impure based on other people's perception of your sexuality. Um, you know, you might let go of that, but you're still going to hold the idea that there are only two options, <laughs> you know, <laughs> pure and impure, good and bad, right? You might no longer be trying to be pure, right? You might be saying, oh, now I'm in the impure category or now I'm in the bad category or actually, the the let's swap everything you know everything that i used to think is good i now think is bad and everything that i used to think is bad i now think is good right um you know so but the point is that you know that there's there's still sort of these underlying assumptions that are based on the fact that there's a binary that there are only two options yep. when of course you know there's a multiplicity of options and as as jonathan was saying earlier you know we are not good <laughs> and neither are we bad mm -hmm. right um, we are. <laughs> so, so anyway, so I, I think, I think one of the, you know, I'm, I feel like I'm speaking in circles a little bit here, but the, but what I'm trying to get at is that the communities that I really see having the healthiest conversations about sexuality are the ones that are really thinking about how do we start kids off in these conversations early in healthy ways that allow them to have 
whole conversations and whole reflections and whole relationships over the course of their lives. Now, adults who are doing this, I think are doing some really incredible things together, but it's harder work. You know, it's harder work when you are constantly having to identify something and go, oh, that's an assumption. That's not just the way the world is. Right? <laughs> you know, it, it's it's just hard. It's just hard. Mm -hmm. So I think a lot of Christian communities are in that place yeah. where they're where they're like, I don't want to do what we did before. Mm -hmm. Right. I don't want to do that purity thing anymore. Um, but but that is that requires a lot of. um a lot of work on the part of the leadership, a lot of work on the part of the congregation, and a lot of community work as we start to not just live into something new, but must first live out of something old. With an eye towards kind of wrapping up the conversation here, I do have two final questions for you. Um, and, and a preface for the first one is that... Um, if anyone or, or anyone listening to this might have, have been aware of the fact, and we are aware of the fact too, that um, this was a, a, an interview conducted by uh, two white cisgender men, which doesn't necessarily preclude us from the kind of uh, damage and harm that the uh, purity culture was certainly capable of, but then with, with each adjective and descriptor sort of means that the story or, or the perspective that we have is getting narrower and narrower and the story that you're telling is not necessarily the one that we have experienced and so that's basically just kind of a, a roundabout way of kind of leading up to this idea for men who are listening or for people who identify as men whether they have gone through the purity culture or not what can we do what kind of response are you and people like this hoping to hear from us i mean how can we be allies are open when it comes to hearing these kinds of stories? It's a great question. I mean, I think it's very similar to allyship in general. You know, one of the first things is really just around what you just said, hearing these kinds of stories, right? Mm -hmm. You know, what is it to really hear, right? And to really believe and try to understand and try to understand, you know, our part in this mess, <laughs> you know, so, so I think, I think that's, that's kind of the first thing is, is really just, is really just creating the space to listen and to hear and to believe, um, you know, we, we all we all, much like we are not all good and we are not all bad, you know, we, you know, all have privilege and we all have um, areas in which we do not have as much privilege, right? And we have all harmed and we have all been harmed. And so I think, I think really, you know, all of us being in the soup together um, of, of of being able to speak about the truth of our own experience and also really take in the truth of people's experiences who are not like ours mm -hmm. and and really understand the ways in which we are all all in it together feels important to me you know it's i i think you know as men um you know being able to listen to women is important 
for me as a white woman in purity culture, being able to listen to women of color in purity culture is important. Um, you know, to me as a, a straight person or to us as straight people and cisgender people to be able to listen to trans people and to LGBT um, people who are members of the LGBTQ community, right? All of these conversations need to be had together in order for us to piece together our own freedom, mm-hmm. right? Like, I can't be free <laughs> until until others are free. Mm-hmm. Because we we are locked into one another, right? And until we we open one another via listening, we will never really be free ourselves from these structures that bind us all. Mm-hmm. So I mean, I maybe you wanted more than that, but I just I yeah, I just want to say I just want to say, you know, the thing that you're doing right now, right? Mm-hmm. You know, which, which is just listening and and recognizing that doesn't mean, as you said before, that you don't have your own pain. Right? And then similar to that one, for listeners who identify as women, whether they've been through the purity culture or not, whether they've read the book or not, they are are still in a society that is still under a lot of patriarchal systems, including something like purity culture, which stemmed from a patriarchal system and, and, and a religion which was, you know, founded on patriarchal systems as well. So for women listening, what hope are you offering? Because you even mentioned before when you're talking uh, to Jonathan about going back and telling these stories that even them, even the interviewees being able to tell their stories even changed things for them, even got them on a path to um, opening up and kind of realizing how they've been affected and how their lives can change, how they can change their lives. So what hope can you offer to people? Because your book certainly ends on it, and it certainly is there's a lot to be hopeful about. Mm-hmm. Yeah, my interviewees, I ask my interviewees, each one of them, to share one thing for readers. What one message do you have for readers? And some core messages arose from them again and again that are also my same messages for people. You know, and the first is you are not alone. (laughs) You're just (laughs) not alone, right? No matter what you're experiencing, you know, particularly if it's related to these things that we are talking about here, I can tell you as someone who has heard a lot of stories, you are not alone, And then the second thing that they said that I think is so beautiful is know yourself. Mm -hmm. So many of us within purity culture, we're taught not to know ourselves. You know, as we talked about before, you know, we were taught to live on the surface and to know what others wanted us to be and to present that. And in the process, sometimes we could actually lose touch with what we are. In fact, one of the most common phrases to come up in my interviews, I don't talk about this in the book, but one of the most common phrases to come up in my interviews among women was, I don't feel like a person. Mm-hmm. And it was often when other people were silencing them or when they were silencing themselves or denying core parts of themselves. But when they started to pay attention to these core parts of themselves, right, when they started to finally study that thing that they were told a woman isn't allowed to, when they were... Uh, you know, started to finally explore their sexuality that they were told they weren't allowed to, you know, another common phrase came up again and again and again and again in my interviews, which was, I feel like a person. 
I remember it's just when, you know, it's like when you, when you track data, you know, and I would track these two lines and be like, God, it's amazing. Why do people keep saying, I feel like a person and I don't feel like a person. And when I tied it to things, I realized, oh, it's when you know yourself and when you honor yourself, Mm -hmm. you feel like a person, right? Mm -hmm. So, so the, so the second thing is to, to know yourself, right? And I think that those maybe are the two most important things, right? If we can actually know ourselves and to know um, know what's inside of us and then know that we aren't alone, I think we are off to a pretty good start. <laughs> well, Linda, I really want to thank you for your time. And I don't just mean the time that you've taken to sit down and do this interview, but also just the years that you took to kind of gather yourself and look inside and know yourself and just kind of dedicate yourself to telling the story, to interviewing these people and to getting this book together and putting it out there. I think it's, it's really important and it's been really powerful. Mm, Thank you. That's very kind of you to say. Thanks again for listening to Linda K. Klein on the Midrash NYC podcast. Remember you can like us and rate us wherever you listen to podcasts. But like I said at the beginning We do have some exciting news to where Linda K. Klein is coming to New York and hosting something that she calls the Break Free Together Dinner. This is a dinner where we get together uh, around a table, around a meal, and we talk about some of the ways in which we might have been harmed by purity culture. But we also get to talk about some of the ways in which we are reshaping and rethinking about our, our sexual ethics. Uh, some of what Linda talked about in the podcast will be happening at the dinner. Uh, it's an incredible experience. There will be counselors, there will be people on hand to make sure that uh, the conversation is one that is productive, one that doesn't hurt or harm, uh, and it's going to be a healing night for all. So if you're interested, simply email life at ForefrontNYC.com to get more information on Linda K. Klein's Break Free Together dinner. That's it for now. We look forward to having you join us next time as we continue our conversations on Midrash NYC.